Wow, indeed. Thank you, Ruth and Jeff and Randy and choir. Thank you. And orchestra. I, I just wrap you in with the choir. It's a beautiful piece. It's a beautiful piece, and yet the words are so haunting. Maybe some of you have seen them in your order of worship. The opening words to that piece we just heard, we have slaughtered in the garden of beauty, digging graves instead of planting. We have slaughtered in the garden of beauty, digging graves instead of planting. Now as a faith community, it is true that most of us, maybe even all of us, but certainly most of us in this space do not believe in the idea of original sin. We do not believe that we are sinful, corrupted humanity, corrupted creatures because of some long ago disobedience in the Garden of Eden by these mythical figures named Adam and Eve. We do not believe that Jesus Christ died to redeem us from those sins and that salvation is only attainable through Jesus Christ. Our religious ancestors left the building on those particular beliefs a long time ago. But the story of Cain and Abel offers us an invitation to reassess our understanding of original sin. It's a way to come back to that question. Context is everything, so let me tease this out this morning. The story of Cain and Abel, as many of you know, follows the creation story in Genesis. It follows the story of Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden and it's important to point out that in the first part of Genesis, in the garden, the word sin is not mentioned at all. It's non-existent. It's not there. You can look. It's not there. As you heard in the reading, Cain and Abel are the offspring of Adam and Eve. So this is the next generation, the story of the next generation. And the first mention of sin happens in this story with Cain and Abel when Cain is angry with Abel and God says to him, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Think of that image for just a second. Sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. It is that the threshold of our lives, the edges of our lives, the edges of our hearts ready to move in at any moment. Its desire is for us, but we must master it. Powerful image. But in this story, sadly, in this story of Cain and Abel, Cain does not master sin. And what happens next in the story is violence, is murder, is blood spilled, brother killing brother, symbolically humanity enacting violence against humanity. In other words, slaughter in the garden of beauty. So church, my question this morning is, what if original sin has nothing to do with Adam and Eve and the garden and corrupted humanity, nothing to do with disobedience or fallen creatures or sex or nakedness or any of that? What if original sin instead is the violence, even the murder we enact upon one another? What if sin is the violence of school and workplace shootings which we hear and read about all too often? What if sin is domestic abuse, drone strikes that kill innocent civilians? What if sin is war? What if sin 
that temptation for violence crouching at the door, what if that is the, that violence that we enact on one another is a new way to understand original sin? I wonder if you've ever felt that temptation in your own life. I've shared with you before, I grew up the oldest of five, and my brother, who's just a couple of years younger than me, uh, I asked him if I could share this story, and he said that I could. Um, and so, like siblings do, you heard it in our call to worship, we were always sort of scrapping and fighting with each other, and I remember this one particular day where I did not master the, the sin that crouched at the door of my heart, <laughs> as it were, and this story has stuck with me much more than it stuck with him. He's like, I have some vague recollection of this, but for me, it landed deep in my heart. What happened is we were scrapping with each other and kind of fighting with each other, and I got behind him, and I got his hands in front of him and put his hands through his legs like this, and remember, I'm behind him. So from behind, I grab his hands as they're through his legs and then pull up on his hands. And he hit the ground really hard. He, he hurt himself. I hurt him. It was a moment that had echoes, maybe, of the Cain and Abel story. This violence enacted on one another. I know you know this, whether you had siblings or friends, you've participated or seen these moments. And so I wonder this morning, I wonder this morning if that is what the ancient writers wanted to teach us, to remind us of, that the real sin is the violence we enact on one another, the violence the human family does when it hurts or strikes down another. I wonder about this because as you watch the arc of the Bible and you look at the life of Jesus, the human, the Jewish Jesus, he doesn't have a lot to say about any so-called original sin in the Garden of Eden. Instead, through his words and actions, he does have a lot to say about the sin that crouches at the door, the sin of violence that desires us, and he shows us a way beyond that violence. In fact, Jesus appears to be a brilliant, nonviolent strategist. Here's one example. You've heard this story. Turn the other cheek. You hit on one cheek, turn the other cheek. This phrase comes from the Sermon on the Mount, as some of you probably know. You have heard the full context as you have heard, said Jesus, that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. This is probably an update on this parable. Like, here's what it really means. <laughs> this is Jesus. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. <laughs> Here's what I really meant. It's been badly misinterpreted for 2,000 years. <laughs> Let me set the record straight. I finally hacked into T-Mobile's <laughs> wireless system. <laughs> so we've... <laughs> Oi. <laughs> oh, I've had my phone go off too, and I just, it's, it just happens. It's all right. Here we go. It might sound in this moment, it might sound like Jesus when he says, just turn the other cheek, is kind of this, well, it reminds me of the effeminate white Jesus we see, right, with the blue eyes and the hair, like, oh, just turn the other cheek. <laughs> just suck it up. Turn the other cheek. 
But there is a lot more going on here than meets the eye. In Jesus' time, you have to understand, the left hand was used for unclean purposes. Use your imagination here. This is a time without a lot of running water or soap, and you can imagine what some of those unclean purposes might be. So you wouldn't use your left hand to buy food, to, to reach for food, to purchase food. You wouldn't use your left hand to shake hands with somebody. You wouldn't even use your left hand when you were striking someone because it was an unclean hand. And to be seen in public doing something unclean would bring shame upon the one who was doing it. So you also have to understand in this story that if you were going to strike someone, you would be using your back hand. You'd be using the back part of your hand. That was a sign of dominance and authority. It meant that the one you were striking was beneath you. There was a hierarchy, and you were above the person that you were striking. In Jesus' time, masters would do this to slaves. Romans did this to Jews. Those in power would strike with their back hand those with less power. Hitting one with a fist or with the open part of your hand, meant that the person you were striking was an equal, or even a superior. So when Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also, he is saying something radical and subversive. Let me demonstrate this. Elaine, do you wanna come up here for just a second? Like, I don't, it's hard to get this when I'm telling you, so let's just demonstrate this. So, Elaine, strike me with your backhand on my right cheek. Bam. Like, she didn't really hit me, but you get the idea. Boom! On the, on, the, on the right cheek with the backhand. She has the power and the hierarchy. I'm underneath her, a sign of dominance and authority. Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the left cheek. So watch what happens here. So she strikes me. I turn my left cheek. So do you see what happened? She can't hit me with the backhand that she's supposed to hit me with. If she, used, she could hit me with the backhand of her left hand. If I turn, her, turn my left cheek, she could use her left hand. That's the unclean hand. If you use the unclean hand in public, you bring shame to yourself. She can't do that. If she hits me with her fist or with the open palm, that is a sign that we are at least equals or in fact, I may be a superior to her. So Jesus in this scenario is suggesting something very, very radical. Thank you for coming up here. He is suggesting something incredibly radical in this story he tells. It is turning the other cheek is an active call for it's a nonviolent resistance and a call for justice and equality. Scholars and authors and preachers have noted this. It essentially says to the oppressor, the one who just hit you with the back of their hand, the one who just hit you with the back of their hand, it says, guess what? You can try that again but you did not achieve what you're trying to do. You hit me on this side, but I'm offering you this cheek, and now what will you do? You did not humiliate or shame me. You tried to, but you didn't. I'm a human being just like you. I am a brother, a sister. You cannot belittle or demean or humiliate me. It is a powerful and subversive act. And again and again in his ministry, Jesus has these teachings, these teachings about the moral power of nonviolent resistance that that help him and his people stand up to the Roman Empire, to stand up for the oppressed, to stand up for the suffering. In a world full of violence, Jesus and his followers refuse to respond with additional violence. It's a powerful story when you understand it in that context. And there are a number of people who have seen these teachings and picked these teachings up and moved forward with them throughout history. 
Mahatma Gandhi picked up these teachings. Martin Luther King Jr. picked up these teachings in his work in the civil rights movement. Think of the creative, nonviolent resistance at the sit-ins and the bus boycotts and the marching arm in arm. Think of the incredible violence that was enacted against those who marched and the refusal to respond with additional violence. Dr. King says it like this. It was the Sermon on the Mount, those words from Jesus, that initially inspired the Negroes of Montgomery to dignified social action. It was Jesus of Nazareth that stirred the Negroes to protest with the creative weapon of love. The creative weapon of love. Non-violence in search of justice. And church, we're not absent from this story. Not at all. We're participants in this story. And what I mean is that in our history, the arc of our religious history, there have been men and women who have advocated nonviolent resistance, who have been pacifists, who have marched, at the, in this, responded to the call to Selma and marched there. Rev, Dr. Excuse me, not Dr. Reverend John Cummins, our minister emeritus, responded to that call. Hundreds of Unitarian Universalist ministers and lay leaders responded to that call in nonviolent resistance to stand against the racial oppression and hatred that they were witnessing at that time. This is a stirring part of our history as a faith community, this commitment to peace and to civil rights. Longtime church members such as Lynn Elling and Nancy and Tom Atchison have been advocates of peace and civil rights for a long time. We feel pride when we tell these stories. We feel pride. And yet, I'll be honest with you, church, as we have dug into our racial justice work with Heather Hackman, have started to think about whiteness and talk about the racial narratives and white privilege and all of these things that we can so easily just check out of, like, I got white privilege, I know what that's about, like, I'm not a race. We can just avoid that conversation. As we lean into it, though, I start to wonder how much of the peace work was shaped by a white lens, a white perspective. And let me tell you what I mean. Let me give you some concrete examples of what I mean. Several months after Selma, several months after March of 1965, this was in June of 65, the board of the Unitarian Universalist Association gave an award to Dana Greeley. Dana Greeley was the president of the association at that time and had taken a significant leadership role in the march in Selma and calling other clergy there and all of the events that had happened. Mark Morrison Reed, who wrote a book called The Selma Awakening, says the award was appropriately given to Greeley. He had done some good work. But even after his involvement in Selma, Dana Greeley did not understand the ongoing work needed around race relations and racial justice in our country or within Unitarian Universalism. Instead, as Mark Morrison Reed says, Greeley put the force of his formidable will to work for the causes of world peace and interfaith collaboration, but not for ongoing race relations. Civil rights and race relations were not his passion. Peace was. That's the end of the quote. Let that sit for just a second. So his passion and I'm not saying Dana Greeley was an evil man, a bad man. I don't think he was at all. He's a man of his time. He seemed to believe that peace work was different 
than racial justice work. But as we have journeyed together these past two years, church, learning to see more clearly, I know, we know, that racial justice is peace work. Racism alive and well today is violence. It is daily violence against people of color. It is stop and frisk. It is marginalization. It is profiling. It is great disparities in our criminal justice system and education system and health system. It is killing us. It is Cain and Abel. The racial injustice around us is brother and sister enacting violence on brother and sister. Ending the violence, understanding how we, and when I say we, I mean white people, how we, with all of the systems and structures and institutions around us, primarily built for our benefit, how we can start to see that and then end our silent contribution to this violence. That is the piecework of our time. Dana Greeley was not a bad man. He was a man of his time. He saw it differently in what could have been this remarkable opening in 1965 in the years to come. For Unitarian Universalists to truly engage in racial justice work, it became a missed opportunity. After the civil rights movement, for many Unitarian Universalists and other progressives and other folks, black concerns and concerns of people of color, they sort of fell off the radar. Things were better, right? Things had improved. Women's liberation came on the scene. White women's liberation came on the scene. The war in Vietnam and the issues of peace and gay rights and concern about the environment, those became the issues of the day, mostly seen through a white lens with the focus being on how those issues affected white people. It's as if many well-intentioned white folks believed that things had changed, that somehow the violence against people of color had ended. But let's not fool ourselves. Let's not fool ourselves. Brian Stevenson, an African-American, a lawyer, he has a TED Talk, he just has this new book that's come out. Have you seen this book? Do you know the TED Talk? Brian Stevenson, if you don't, Google it. Brian Stevenson. It's an incredible TED Talk and a really good book. He says, we forget in this country, we, there's, there's some amnesia about our history and we don't have an honest, real conversation about the history of slavery, about the history of the Reconstruction period and the era of racial terrorism and we forget how hard the civil rights movement was. He says it's like there's this little fantasy story we tell ourselves, day one, Rosa Parks on a bus, day two, Martin Luther King walks on Washington, day three, some, some legislation gets signed and everything's good. Everything's good. He goes on to say, if you think about it that way, you minimize the trauma and the damage and the divides that were created. You can't segregate, this is Brian Stevenson saying, you can't segregate and humiliate people decade after decade without creating long-lasting injuries. I'm gonna pause, because the next thing I wanna share with you, if you really let this into your heart, you will weep. You will weep. What I want to tell you, and this is from the Justice Department, and this is about the injuries that continue. This is not some distant problem we had. This is today. The Justice Department reports that in this century, this century, one in three black babies born 
are expected to go to jail or be in prison. This is not because African-American men are more violent, are not educated, are bad people, are unable to figure out the system. This is because there is residual racial injustice in this country. And in Minnesota. And in Minnesota. Let that in. One in three. One in three. This was not true in the 20th century or the 19th century. One in three. Cain and Abel. Stevenson says, we are still haunted, undermined, and corrupted by our legacy of racial inequality. And so church, I want to know, when we say we are a peace church, when we say we are a peace church, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a commitment to ending the violence of the racial nightmare we still live in? Are we talking about white people really getting serious about understanding whiteness and how it works in the world and confronting it nonviolently? Imagine if a thousand white Unitarian Universalists had stood with our brothers and sisters in Ferguson in front of the police nonviolently and said, Hey, friends, you can't enact this violence. You can't continue this violence. So are we talking about white people doing the work that's ours to do and doing it? We can feel guilty and we can feel shameful. We can't live there, moving beyond that without shutting down. And the good news is, friends, and I'm just going to come out here and talk to you straight. The good news is I see this happening. I see many of you talking to one another, talking to me, talking about teachers and doctors and palliative, palliative care workers and lawyers who are saying, I'm ready. I want to do this work in my sphere of influence. I want to do this work in the church. I'm ready to do what I can. And it's hard and it's uncomfortable and it's terrifying to step out of what we know and to put a stake in the ground and say, we're going to end the violence. We're going to end violence enacted against brothers and sisters. It is scary as hell in a system that mostly works for most of us as white people to put that stake in the ground. Peace work can feel hard. Peace work can be slow and uncomfortable. Peace work can break our hearts. When I put myself in your shoes because I've been there, there's a part of me that knows some of you in this congregation are saying, come on, Reverend Justin, we get this. We get this racial justice work. We got it. We know, we know how to do this. Can you stop? Please stop preaching about racial justice. <laughs> I've been doing this work since, you know, you might say in your head since the civil rights, the 60s. I've been thinking about this stuff. I don't discredit or discount the work you're doing, the work you've done. But friends, we don't get it. I don't get it. There is so much to learn, so much to do, so much violence that continues to be enacted that our voice, our bodies, our love have to be at play. This is the peace work of our time. Amen. Amen.